Beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? What wisdom is there for us as white Christians in these troubled, violent times of pandemics and racial capitalism, and also the beauty of resistance? I'm Reverend Anne Dunlap, pronouns she, her, hers. I'm a United Church of Christ minister, and I'm the Faith Organizing Coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE. I live in the place currently called Buffalo, New York, here in the homelands of the Haudenosaunee and Erie peoples. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians, white Christians talking to other white Christians about race and white supremacy. We believe white Christians like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. And we do this work remembering we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. The word is resistance. Well, we are definitely into autumn here where I live. Um, The light is gentler, the breeze is cooler, the goldenrod is indeed golden, and of course the trees, the trees. All the glorious riot of colors before the maples and oaks and lindens and locusts release what they no longer need to hold. One thing I'm loving about living here farther north between the shores of two great lakes is that there are four definite long seasons. Autumn is no exception. Our first autumn here three years ago, I noticed it. The changes started small, a few leaves edging red or gold, goldenrod flowering out, berries ripening on hawthorns, until everywhere, everywhere felt like it was just glowing with color And then the leaves started falling more and more, little by little, until everything was bare and ready for winter. That's all true, except for one tree in our front yard, a royal paulonia is its name. It has giant heart-shaped leaves that don't really change in autumn. Instead, they all fall off at once when we have the first freeze. I don't really think they're supposed to live here so far north, but here this lovely tree is. And I just laughed out loud the first time I opened our curtains in the morning and discovered our front yard was carpeted in these giant leaves. It was a lot to rake up, let me tell you. And we had to rake them. We usually don't rake the leaves. But these leaves are really too big to break down into the soil easily. But the royal paulonia notwithstanding... I love that autumn here is long, that there's all this beauty before the release, before the letting go that's necessary for winter, 
for the fallow time. I think there's something here about these four long, distinct seasons that my bones recognize as familiar in a deep ancestral way, as being similar to the rhythms from where my people come from. Rhythms of the seasons that hold wisdom for us about what is necessary to generate life. Our reading for today is from Mark's Gospel, and it it includes one of those very famous lines that so many of us like to explain away. I think you'll know the line when it comes. So here's the reading from Mark 10, verses 17 to 31. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. The man said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these since my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the man heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals, it's impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or siblings or parents or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold houses, siblings, parents, and children, fields with persecutions now in this age and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Actually, there's probably a couple of lines in there that are well known at least. Of course, the camel through the eye of the needle. And many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. My mom liked to repeat that one when my brothers and I got to arguing about sharing and dividing chores and stuff like that. 
she wasn't wrong. Even if as the oldest, the first, you know, I always felt like it was not fair that I'd end up last on this list. What my mom was getting at was, here's how we live in this family together. We share things. We all do our part. And actually, I'm just realizing what she did was pretty revolutionary because what she was saying was that the three of us all had to share responsibilities, that my brothers had to wash the dishes sometimes and clean the house, that we all had to know how to cook and wash our clothes and sew on a button, not just me and my mom as the two women, but all of us. She actually upended the social structure of patriarchy in our home at least, by insisting that me and my brothers shared responsibilities. Wow, well done, Mom. I think most of us encounter this story about Jesus and the rich man and the camel and the needle and react kind of like I did with my mom. We think only about the perceived loss that comes with upending social structures. We say, surely Jesus didn't really mean for the man to sell everything. Except he did. He did mean that. Because Jesus understood that to be wealthy in the context of the Roman Empire's oppression meant that in some way you were collaborating with Rome. You were complicit in Rome's colonization. You were making your wealth off Rome's exploitation of your own people. It didn't matter how many of the commandments you were practicing faithfully. If you were wealthy, if you possessed more than your fair share, then you were not participating in the divine economy, an economy of life called here the kingdom of God, but participating in Rome's economy, an economy of death. Your wealth actually relied on murder, adultery, theft, lies, and fraud, those commandments you thought you were following so well. And so if you want to reorient yourself to the economy of life, if you want eternal life, which I have said before is really the life that generates more life, you have to first let go of, release all that ties you to the economy of death. All the ill-gotten possessions that stole food from someone's table, that stole medicine from someone's body, that stole breath from someone's life. Sell what you own and give the money to the poor folks. Sell what you own and give the money back. A lot of progressive folks like to think we get this story. We get a little bit on our high horse, like, yeah, sell all you have, you rich Christians. We love to throw this verse at folks who read the Bible, quote, unquote, literally about other things. But what about where Jesus says, all your, says sell all your possessions, we say. Why don't you take that literally? I have totally done this. But mostly, if we're honest, we don't take it literally either. Our churches sit on endowments we won't release to feed and house people. Our churches sit on stolen land we won't give back. Our churches sit on bank accounts of financial institutions that fund pipelines. And so do we. How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Do you notice what Jesus does here? 
Jesus implicates everyone. First, he says how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. But then, when the disciples are confused, as we often are, he says, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. There's no modifier there, no group named the second time. It's just, Jesus says it's just hard for everyone. And I even think he includes himself in this. He implicates himself because when the man calls him a good teacher, Jesus responds, why do you call me good? As if to say being good isn't the point. He doesn't differentiate himself from anyone else evolved in this scene. And I'm reminded of what Nicola Torbett has said a few times on this podcast, that this posturing that quote-unquote woke white folks do about being the good ones, the ones who get it, actually perpetuates the division that white supremacy relies on. That being anti-racist isn't about being good. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. That being part of the kingdom of God isn't about being good. It's about making choices. Often very hard choices over and over. Because that's the nature of living in oppressive systems and violent structures. That's the nature of living in the economy of death. We're all complicit in it. Even when we think we're following the commandments. Even when we think we're doing our best. Or at least our best we know how to do in that moment. How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. I don't think Jesus means this as a judgment. I think it's just recognition. It's hard to make these choices. Hard to release what does not serve the economy of life. It's just hard. It's just hard. I'm struck by how it says that Jesus loved the man. The man says, basically, I've done the best I know how. And, And Jesus hears that and loves him. I wonder if that love is like a compassion, a tenderness for someone who is trying maybe and is still yet so entangled. Perhaps doesn't realize they are so entangled in an economy of death. Like Jesus knows that what he's about to say is going to shake this man all the way up and down, and he feels for him. I wonder what would happen if all of us, when we're talking to each other about how we're so entangled in white supremacy, if we held each other with that kind of compassion, that kind of tenderness. Nevertheless, the man walks away grieving. Maybe the rich man and and the disciples, too, thought selling all you had was like the royal paulonia in our yard, dropping its leaves all at once, a startling, sudden event. Today, everything, tomorrow, nothing. Today, fullness, tomorrow, bare and empty. It's such a common response when we talk about abolition, for example, like... Today there's cops and tomorrow there's nothing. 
today there's cops, tomorrow there's chaos? Or to talk about the pipelines again, like today there's fossil fuels, tomorrow there's darkness? Today there's gasoline, tomorrow there's no cars? But that's what Jesus is getting at, that upending the social structure, releasing what does not serve life, it's hard, yeah, but it's how we find our way back to life that generates life. Alexis Pauline Gums writes, What if abolition isn't a shattering thing? Not a crashing thing, not a wrecking ball event. What if abolition is something that sprouts out of the wet places in our eyes, the broken places in our skin, the waiting places in our palms, the tremble holding in my mouth when I turn to you? What if abolition is something that grows? And here I come back to the wisdom of autumn, how release is beautiful. Release nourishes the soil, all those leaves composting into the soil, nourishing the seeds germinating in the winter dark, and the networks of microbes and worms and beings that help make rich soil and strong plants. Release makes new life possible come spring. Life that generates life. In the cycle of seasons, at least in this part of the world, that process of release comes again and again. Likewise for us, the choice to release or hold on to the gains of the economy of death come again and again. It's not a one and done, but a journey. A hard one, often, because as Jesus said, sometimes what we have to let go of hurts. Family, friends, beloveds, possessions. We have to be willing to lose them. The thing is that we gain more, a hundredfold, he says, life that generates life. And this has been my experience as I have deepened in my anti-racism work. I have definitely lost relationships, lost opportunities, but I have gained so much more. People I know who will always have my back. People who know I will always have theirs. White supremacy teaches us that transformative change is a binary. Cops today, tomorrow chaos. Pipelines today, tomorrow darkness. It serves the power structure well to keep us believing that if we try to shed, to release, to def- def- defund, to dismantle, that the only thing waiting for us is nothingness, chaos, violence. Always the threat of violence. But Jesus teaches something different. The cycle of the seasons teaches us something different. There is beauty as we build. There is beauty as we release. There is beauty waiting for us. There is beauty right here and now. I wonder today what the rich man ended up doing. We don't know. We assume that he grieves because he doesn't want to give up his possessions. But I'd like to think his grief, his heartache, was at least in part about recognizing his role 
his complicity in the economy of death. I think we do grieve when we, as white folks, when we recognize our complicity in white supremacy. I know I do. Maybe he did too. Maybe he went home and looked around and picked things up in his hands and started slowly putting things in piles to sell. Maybe eventually he came back to Jesus with a purse full of money to contribute to the movement. Maybe they had a long talk as they walked the road together. Maybe the man realized he'd found new family. Life generating life. Life generating life. For our call to action today, I'm inviting you again to support the Indigenous-led resistance to the Line 3 pipeline. Releasing our reliance on fossil fuels is one way we can generate new life for all of us, all of creation. Follow Honor the Earth, established by Winona LaDuke, and the Jinyu Collective for updates and action alerts from the water protectors. We'll have links to all of this um, and more in our transcript, as well as on social media for actions you can take to defund the economy of death. Thanks, as always, for joining us from wherever you are on this good earth. We'd love to hear from you all by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook, wherever, or filling out the listener survey on our podcast page at surge.org. We'd love to hear from you about how we're doing, especially from folks of color and non-Christian folks who may be checking us out. And we'll be back next week with a resistance word from Seth Wispelway. You can find out more about Surge at surge.org, S-U-R-J dot org. And our podcast lives on SoundCloud. Search on the word is resistance. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. And finally, a huge thanks to our sound editor, Claire Hitchens. We're so glad to have you joining the team, Claire. Blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap.